Hello and welcome to the Evolving Spiritual Practice podcast. My name is Ralph Cree and this is brought to you in association with bodyheartmindspirit.co.uk. In this episode, I talk to Nagpa Jaume, who uh, is a friend of mine who I lived with in London when we were students. And I hadn't spoken to him for a little bit over 20 years. And uh, during those 20 years, uh, he has become a ordained Tibetan Buddhist in the Arrow Ter lineage. And uh, he's a trainee um, lama and a teacher. Um, he's been doing that practice in that lineage for um, over 20 years. Um, and uh, yeah, it was a kind of catch up of what it's what it was like to go from uh, um, normal person to being a fully ordained Tibetan Buddhist he's not a monk uh, he comes from a, a tantric lineage um, where they are very serious practitioners but uh, they're not celibate uh, they're not monks and nuns you know they have families they have jobs they're in the world um, but they're also very serious practitioners um, so we discussed um, you know what it was like to go through that transition the types of training he had to do and um, what the core teachings of the Arota um, lineage are it's a primarily a Zogchen um, lineage and um, yeah and the, the, the he's written a, a book on the student teacher teacher relationship and we explored that subject and lots of other things and it was uh, really fascinating for me it was very bizarre to go from uh, having not seen him for over 20 years normally you sort of do a little bit of small talk to to catch up but we just went straight into a podcast interview with him as a tibetan buddhist teacher and uh, straight into the meaning of life and <laughs> yeah it was uh, it was a lot of fun for me and i uh, hope you enjoy it Uh, for those listening, this is this is an unusual episode for me um, because uh, today I'm uh, talking with Jaume, um, who I knew as Greg uh, a long time ago. Um, so we haven't spoken in over twenty years, I think. Uh, and we we lived in London together when we were both students, and uh, we were both really into. Tibetan Buddhism and other things uh, at the time. And um, Jaume uh, has gone the whole way and he now is a, a fully ordained Tibetan Buddhist um, wearing all the robes and, and everything. Um, and so, I mean, I know nothing of your journey of the last 20 years and that was what I wanted to explore um, you know, in this conversation together is how does, you know, what's it like for someone to go from, uh, I don't want to use the word normal person, but you know what I mean, uh, just a, a normal person um, to where you are now. And are you a teacher? Um, do, you, do you teach in your tradition as well? Yeah, I'm. I'm. Um, I'm what um, my teachers call a um, a brevet lama, um, and brevet very much in the way that the um, the term was used um, in the military. You know, when when one 
um, you know, was acting or, or basically taking over missions um, that, you know, were, were above one's rank. So, you know, in effect, basically were, um, you know, there's me and there's a number of us were teachers in training. So, um, you know, training as lamas, um, but practically, yeah, it means I have personal students. Um, I have a small sangha. I've been teaching for some years. Um, but you know that that's the that's the way um, the uh, um, you know students and senior students are are you know brought into a teaching role little by little. So um, that that's how it happens. So um, I, I teach in this tradition, yeah. Um, and um, and maybe going back to the to your earlier question and and really the the kind of the meat of what we're going to discuss tonight. Mm. Um, I think in in many ways. Um, you were probably one of these pivotal people um, in in that time 20 years ago now. So it was late 90s. Um, and it was, I think I had a, you know, a fairly, um, you know, standard um, um, journey into um, Buddhism, um, where, you know, as, as many of the people that we were, you know, kind of mingling with at the time, you know, we were thinking about the meaning of life, you know, what we were doing, studying, where, where, this, where was this going to take us, etc. Um, and I had what you probably had some years before, um, but, you know, this, this kind of intense period of, you know, looking, you know, and reading and trying to understand, um, you know, what it is we're going to be doing, you know, and we were, it was pretty clear, I think, to most of us that what was on the menu, you know, like, you know, get a, get a degree, get a career, get a family, you know, just live that life, um, wasn't really, um, you know, the, the kind of thing we were after. Um, and I think, uh, I mean, I, I've always, um, you know, remembered our time together at, 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 that, at that time as being one of these times when you were, you know, throwing books at me and saying, oh, you should read this and you should read that. And this is interesting. That's interesting. And so that, that was fantastic. I, I, I have very, very, um, I had fantastic souvenirs at the time. And it was it was quite an eclectic um you know reading list you know there's Carlos Castaneda and uh, you know there's there's all the kind of um you know all the, the the new age um you know stuff that was floating around in the late 90s um you know crystal healing and, and all this stuff and um and it's true that we were it's, you know the the things that you and I were both coming back to quite a lot was um was you know Tibetan Buddhism um and, you know, and as it continued and, you know, as the reading list extended to some extent, um, I found myself coming back to um, Tibetan Buddhism and especially, you know, um, teachings from the Nyingma school. And that, that seemed to be, so that's, you know, what one of the, you know, without going into any great, de great detail, but it's, you know, one of the um, main schools of, of Tibetan Buddhism. It's the, the old school of Tibetan Buddhism, the historical school that dates back to the eighth century. And that was, really you know the, the the teachings that resonated were, were kind of always um you know from teachers that taught in these traditions and you know within the Nyingma school um and so you know that's basically that's that's how you start and I remember that um when we were you know we were sharing a house in um can't remember where it was. It was somewhere in Zone Horn, Two. Hornsey, Hornsey in London. Horn, yeah, exactly. The, the far-flung reaches of North, you know, Northern London. Yeah. Um, I, I just remember kind of um, starting a, a practice, you know, daily practice of silent sitting, um, which, when I you know think back of it now, it, it was, it was almost, um, it was, it was brutal. You know, I was, I was, you know, forcing myself to sit for about um, forty-five minutes a day. Um, 
in um, I think I, I uh, lotus po lotus posture or half lotus posture basically you know in, in these physical positions that you know my knees and my ankles just weren't weren't agreeing with um, and I, I kind of you know sludged my way through that year of, of silent sitting um, which you know which was great in terms of getting that initial experience and I think the um, what happened afterwards is that you know there's um, I mean, you know, people that, you know, go down the rabbit hole the way I did, um, basically there comes a point where, you know, you've, you've read a lot, you know, you've, you've discussed a lot, you've thought about these things quite a bit, you know, you've been off to listen to teachers talk, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think there's just a point when you realize that you, you're going to need guidance, um, you know, you're going to need a, a kind of one-to-one -one relationship with someone um, with whom you're going to be, you know, able to get guidance and practical advice and you know feedback that that connects to um, you know your your actual um you know living conditions your, your mental state etc um and so i mean i was i was i guess lucky um you know to bump into books you know i used to scour these you know bookshops everywhere in london you know these kind of spiritual bookshops and stuff. we used to go to watkins watkins bookshop in yeah. leicester near leicester square or something what is like one of the oldest esoteric stores? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, there was there was that there was one in um close to was it Neil's Garden in you know Covent Garden mm. Neil's Yard in Covent yeah. Garden. There used to used to be one of these places that you know sold a lot of you know it was like a kind of spiritual paraphernalia shop. Mm. Um, I was and I was there a few years ago and it, I think it's turned into a um, a footwear store. <laughs> it's, it's truly quite depressing in a way, but um they they used to have you know they they had stacks of buddhist books it was fantastic and um i remember picking up you know a book that had been written by um Naksha Rinpoche, um that was his he, his author you know he went by the name nakpachogyam at the time um as an author and it was um it was a book on maha yoga so you know inner tantra of you know nyingma tibetan buddhism so fairly technical stuff but it was written um in a you know in, couched in very experiential English so you know what is the actual experience of practicing this stuff like you know what what you know what does it do and I think what and that was a bit of a pivotal pivotal point because I, I remember reading that kind of probably reading about half it on the bus um going back to Hornsey and then you know finished reading that read it a couple of times and then remembering that there was another book in the bookshop that had been written by him and going back and buying that and I just remember the, I think that the, um, the thing that did it for me to, in some way was that um, there was just a description of the way um, we are um, psychologically, um, you know, in, in the way we react to things and the way things are, um, you know, both solid and, and insubstantial at the same time. There was just something that, that really resonated there. So I, I read everything that he'd written um, and, you know, and, and after that, you know checking checking up you know on on the web you know what they were doing and you know basically there were retreats being taught in wales so i thought okay we'll go to one of those um and i never looked back i basically became a, a student in that lineage um after my first retreat so it's um in in this lineage it's you know when you're a student you become an apprentice so you're, you're an apprentice tantrika um and i you know i've stayed since you know and um and that was it so i guess I've been probably luckier than most, you know, being able to 
basically kind of find the right thing, find the right fit um, almost immediately and, you know, stick with it. And that's what I've been doing now for over 20 years. So, um, so yeah, it's, um, it, you know, it's 20 years seems, seems long. I was just very um, fortunate to kind of find a lineage and a style of practice that I resonated with, you know, almost immediately. I mean, I became a student in that lineage when I was, I was in I don't know, 2000, so I was what, I mean, 21, it's fairly young, um, you know, and I've, I've, you know, stayed with it since. Yeah, that's great. I remember I can actually bring to mind an image, you know, my mind of you sitting in your room meditating in the half lotus posture. You were very disciplined about it. I really admired that about you. And I, I also remember reading a, reading a book by, um, um, so it's Napa Rinpoche now. Is that his name? Nakchang, yeah. Nakchang Nap Nap Rinpoche. Rinpoche, yeah. And um, it's called Wearing the Body of Visions. Uh, is that the book? And I still got it on my bookshelf, actually. And I can remember you yeah. coming back and telling me about this this interesting guy who was sort of he was German, but he'd had these visions and uh, you know dreams about being a reincarnation of a Tibetan Buddhist teacher, and um, he'd you know his story about um, you know, going to India and learning with with Tibetan lamas and and all that stuff and it, it sounded really fascinating i remember seeing a picture of him in all of his you know reg full rig tibetan regalia with all his bells and dojes mm. and all these things and his big earrings um big grin mm. on his face and um i thought it looked like a really really cool guy um and uh yeah so i can you know can remember back back to that time and so the 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 lineage that you've become part of this arrow tur is that how you pronounce it arrow tur yeah absolutely yeah. so the arrow tur lineage um has a particular focus on vajrayana and zogchen uh, as far as i can tell mm. uh, by you know looking on on the website and stuff uh, which is great i want to get into that a bit later because th those are things i i still to this day absolutely love <laughs> so um uh, but so I'm interested that, like, you know, the first thing I wanted to ask is, you know, for anybody listening to this as well, why of, of all, you know, so you said we've got this a kind of eclectic beginning where you and I were living in London, we're students, we're young, we're sort of, you know, taking psychedelics, smoking lots of weed, sitting around talking about the meaning of life, reading all these books from all these different lineages. We're there sitting at the, the kind of the buffet of all of the, the, the things available and so what made you choose tibetan buddhism out of all the things that were on on uh, on offer at the time what was special about tibetan buddhism for you um i'm going to say something cliche so uh, you know i i apologize in advance but um in in some ways it, it feels that you know tibetan buddhism chose me there, there was never really um a sense in which you know i'm going to choose this um now experientially what that means is that you know the what you read and i think the the descriptions of um you know the different you know spiritual states of you know what what um realization means um you know you you get a feeling and that's something that resonates that resonates in you 
Um, and I think the, um, the main thing is that these kinds of descriptions um, basically talk to um, a knowledge that you already have, but you, you know, simply forgotten that you had it. Um, and I think that a lot of the experience, when I look back at this, um, this was basically descriptions of, um, you know, practices of paths of, um, you know, state, states of awareness. It, it spoke to something in me that, you know, it, it basically hit that, that kind of intuitive chord where you think, oh, I, I know what, what that means. Yeah, you know, I, 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 have, a, I have a feeling for what that is. And th this is something that happens, you know, in, in, you know, in all walks of life. You know, when you, when you have a close friend that tells you about his experience of something that you have no experience of, um, you know, because they're enthusiastic about it, because they're your friend, you'll listen to it and, you know, something comes through. So you can also, you know, you can, you can get a feel for that, even though you don't have a direct experience. Um, and I think that's that's very much um, what happened to me when I was, you know, in front of the buffet, um, and you know, you go in for this ex ex extremely specialized thing, you know, and you're like, how did that happen? Yeah, it, it's um, I mean, I I I, sh I share the same um, amazement um, that you you know you probably have of you know of this you know this vast choice of things. How how do you zero into something that specific? Um, you know, I think it's it's mainly, you know, because what you read there resonates, and then because the onus in um, in Buddhism is to practice, you know, you need to. It's not enough to simply you know listen to the teachings or read the teachings, but you need to um, you know practice and you know see if it makes if it you know if it makes a difference in terms of your own experience and where that experience takes you, and so you know you're. You'll practice a bit, then you'll discover some things, and then you'll read a bit more, and then you know you'll practice a bit more. So, you know, study and practice kind of um, you know work together in that way, and and allow you um, to I think you know develop a basis of direct experience, um, you know, which kind of bypasses the need to overthink things too much. Um, and as soon as you've kind of launched into that cycle, you know, basically of practicing, studying, practicing, studying. Um, you know, the, the path kind of becomes a, a natural flow. Um, so, you know, once once that cycle is started, you just keep going. You know, there, there's no sense in which, well, I mean, I guess there can be, but I never had any sense in which, um, you know, I've discovered this, but this is not what I want. So I'm going to go back to the buffet and look for something else. You know, there was there was never that idea. So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know what else I can really say about that. It's just... Um, there was just a strong pull from the start, you know, there yeah. was a strong pull from the start. So, you know, it's mysterious. Does it mean that you've been involved in this in the past? Maybe, you know, is it just something that you resonate with? And, it, you know, it's this is what will work with you in this life. You know, maybe, you know, who knows? Yeah, I um, so uh, the bulk of my practice over the last 20 years has been Tibetan Buddhist in origin. Um, and I when i first encountered tibetan buddhism i just it just instantly recognized it i was like this makes perfect sense to me i really felt it felt like coming home um in a way mm. i'd never had with christianity or anything like that and yeah it does make you you know i mean i i've 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 at the end of the day i don't know a damn thing about anything so <laughs> you know, i mean really i don't even know what is going on but you know do you 
you do ask naturally you ask questions like you know why why have i got such an affinity for this because it's tibetan culture is so alien i mean you're french i'm english um you know nothing in our background had that i mean the only exposure i'd had apparently the ewoks and star wars speak tibetan um and uh right. yeah, that is like the only exposure <laughs> i'd had to it <laughs> but i think so you know one thing that does stand out about tibetan buddhism um i don't know who said this uh but but i i think this is true that um zen is sort of essential buddhism and tibetan buddhism is is complete buddhism it's got the whole it's got the the sutra teachings vajrayana zogchen you know it's, it's uh you know uh yeah the hinayana mahayana vajrayana zogchen it's all in there and um you know zen it gets right to the point i mean because zen is something i've also been been very interested in um you know and was at the time when we were in in london um and i've, I've enjoyed it but I've, I've always felt it to be slightly lacking in the the depth that i found in tibetan buddhism um and i see that so you um so i'm also interested in wh why you chose the the arrow ter tradition as of, i mean you've touched on this but you know that there are more traditional tibetan buddhist lineages and schools um but you've chosen one which is a little bit unconventional we can get into that in in, in a bit but you know what why you could have gone to study with namkai norbu or you know some other teacher like that that's sort of got more of a you know traditional tibetan lineage um and i think you know you have touched on it a little bit that you you liked the the style of of um the teacher in the arata um but what you know what yeah what have you got to say about that um there, there was a time um you know again when i was you know before i decided that i you know go down and you know meet these you know arotea people and see what they were about um there was a time where i you know i contemplated becoming a monk um because you know that that seemed to be one of the ways um you know in which you could actually you know dedicate your life to serious practice um you know and at the time you know i was looking around you know there's quite a number of um you know monastic centers even in france you know linked to the you know Kagyu lineages Nyingma lineages etc so i was thinking this could be a way you know to, to, to discover a bit more and you know so that the whole um monastic route at one point seemed to be an option and um i think it's it's basically when i when i met my teachers um and you know because what they said resonated um you know and i just decided that you know th this this is their path so i'm you know i might as well um you know try this you know we'll, and we'll see where it goes you know and um the um the arota exists within a um, um a tradition you know enigma tradition um which is called the guga changlude so the you know the white sangha um or the lineage of um nakpas and nakmas so it's you know basically um tantric ordination um and um there's you know there's it's basically the, the um ordination or the, the form of ordination which is based in the tantras 
Um, whereas, you know, monasticism and, you know, the, the monastic vows are, you know, based in sutra. Um, and and this, this whole ethos of being able to, um, you know, live in the world um, without renouncing the world, yet being able to engage in, um, in a level of practice um, which is extremely involved, um, I thought was just, it is, I thought it was just something that was worth a try you know, considering, you know, my situation at the time, you know, and, but, you know, I didn't, I wasn't a great wanderer explorer, you know, I, I didn't um, particularly want to go off to India or Nepal and, you know, and, and you know, go looking for, you know, a, a potential Lama somewhere out in the East. Um, and because all of this was basically on my doorstep, you know, I was, you know, a three hour train journey away from Paddington Station. <laughs> Seemed, that seemed fair, fair enough. Mm. Um, you know, I, I kind of, I, you know, I thought, you know, we'll, we'll give this a go. Um, and the um, the ethos of, you know, what was taught, what you know, resonated with me. The the descriptions or the, um, um, you know, the, basically the the description of the nature of mind, um, of its, you know, of our confusion, of our potential for realization. All of this, um, you know, made made sense and connected, um, and so, you know, the um, I didn't, you know, and, and for some years actually, um, I I had no idea that the um, the Arotair was, you know, fairly um, unconventional. In actually, it's unconventional for Westerners. Um, it's it's a very interesting thing because it's um, when you talk to uh, um, Nyingma Lamas, especially in Bhutan. Um, the Arotair is extremely conventional. Um, it's simply um, a Dzogchen lineage, you know, and so the, the emphasis um, is on things which weren't or aren't apparent um, in the West, um, you know, when Westerners approach um, the, the kind of, um, you know, Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhist setup in the West, which is very much geared toward monasticism. So um, there was also what you were saying with um, um, Namkai Nobu Rinpoche. I mean, Namkai Nobu Rinpoche could, could have been an option. Um, it's just that, you know, I didn't have a connection at the time. You know, I read some of his books. He seemed to have a, a massive Sangha. I thought it'd be difficult to approach and be able to study closely with him. You know, he had thousands of students. Um, and so I, I think something about the, um, the kind of family aspect or the family lineage aspect of the Arotair where, um, you know, teachers, um, you know, stop taking students, you know, above 111 students and this, this emphasis on having, you know, small close sanghas so that practice can actually occur, um, so that people can relate to each other as sangha members, so that you can have a direct relationship with the teacher, um, rather than the rock star teacher that, you know, comes to your city or your country once every two years and, you know, there's fawning disciples everywhere and, it just seemed a more workable proposition, you know, in, in terms of actually making, you know, making progress. Um, and so I thought, you know, and I thought I'll, I'll, I'll give this a go, you know, and I might as well do this in as pragmatic a way as possible, you know, kind of really work with the teacher. It might not be, um, you know, a Tibetan rock star Lama, but at least, you know, it, it'll probably help me, um, you know, get somewhere rather than kind of imagining I'm getting somewhere and, you know, just, um, you know, playing around. So uh, that's, I think that's, it's, it, it was a wager, you know, I, it's, it was, um, yeah, I took the risk. I, yeah, it, it was a risk to take. And I thought, I'll, I'll take this risk, you know, it, it makes sense. Um, and we'll see where it goes. 
Yeah, I really like this the idea where you, you, you each teacher doesn't take more than 111 students and you've got kind of this sort of holonic structure of different teachers that have all got students and this kind of personal connection. And that is very different, as you say, to the rock star teacher where you may never even get to talk to them. You might go up and receive an empowerment or something like that, but to actually have a conversation uh, would be very rare. And you may, you may have one conversation mm. in your life. <laughs> that might be it. Um, yeah. And I, um, you know, the other, so someone who looks at you wearing all the dress you wear and all that kind of stuff, they might think, all oh, right, this guy's a monk. Um, but, your the lineage you're from is is about something very very different. I mean, it, you know, this is an important thing to bring up because when Westerners think of becoming a serious Tibetan Buddhist, for example, they think, "All oh, right, well, I'm going to have to become a monk. I'm going to have to, you know, give up my job, become celibate, um, you know, live a life of poverty, and you know, not have any relationships, and all of those kind of things." Which um, yeah, that <clears throat> that's definitely that's a way to go. And is it I, I, you know, just after we left London, I wanted to become a hermit. Um, you know, my my kind of um, archetype was uh, Milarepa or someone like that. You know, that's who I wanted to be. Um, but actually, you know, I did a little bit of that kind of life, and uh, actually, I decided I didn't want to do that. And and I, um, so the the, the so I've been getting the last few years very into the non-dual Shaiva Tantra uh, from from India. Um, and, you know, from my understanding of that, that the, the tantric approach started as a, as a way of teaching that was not for people who were not mon uh, monks and nuns and it, for, for lay people, people that had jobs, they had families, they weren't celibate. So you could do you become a serious practitioner. Um, but at the same time, you know, not renouncing the world. And there's that, you know, it feeds very much into this thing of um, Nirvana and Samsara being one thing. Uh, you know, this world's a kind of garden of delights to be, uh, to be explored. You know, that's that, you know, in the, the non-dual uh, Shaiva Tantra tradition, the senses are goddesses, um, you know, that, that kind of, deliver offerings to the sort of central deity which is your sort of formless um awareness shiva or uh, the great goddess or whatever and you know um i love that approach um and i've come to appreciate it more and more as year and year goes on and i've got a family i'm married um you know i've, I've got a job but i've always been a, a really serious practitioner of this stuff but i've never wanted to become a monk or a nun and um so you know it's, it's it, i just wanted to bring this out for any for people listening um that that being a monk or a nun is not the only thing on offer you know you can even dress like like you are in all the stuff i mean i know you 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 don't go to work wearing this stuff it's only when you're teaching yeah i <laughs> know uh, i don't that, that would be that would be quite fun i think that would be a shocker for some people <laughs> you, you, you work you work in a bank or something is it what, no, I don't work in a bank. I work in um, um, in you know communications and branding. I'm um, I, you know I'm basically managing director of an agency. So you know you I'm 
as as involved in samsara as possible yeah. um basically um and that's i think that's part of the practice and that's part of the magic of the practice but it, i mean it, what what you say is i mean this this goes back to the um i mean it, you know in terms of hindu tantra and buddhist tantra this goes back to the you know the, the mahasiddhas of india um you know which which predates um you know anything that could have happened in in tibet and and really um it's it's as you say the um the 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 way that the the method of transmission at the time of the mahasiddhas worked was um you know teacher to students um generally there was one or a few meetings but there was a high point or a pivotal point where um, the teacher transmitted, you know, a method of practice to the students, which is, you know, druptop, um, and you know, sadhana. That you know, that, that's where that comes from. People think that sadhana is, you know, a, you know, texts, you know, pesha texts, you know, full of full of words. But actually, a sadhana, a druptop, a method is, a, you know, means method of accomplishment. So whatever your teacher gives you is a method of accomplishment. And in the style of the Mahasiddhas, basically, they they gave. You know, very simple, direct instructions to a disciple, um, and that disciple, who you know, and they would come from all walks of life. You know, you know, you've probably read about this, but you know, there were you know prostitutes, you know, there were um, bankers, there would have been kings, you know, there would have been cobblers, um, you know, people, you know, people from all walks of life. You know, there was the the enlightened idiot. Um, you know, you'd really have um, all the psychological types, and you know, people from. The whole spectrum of um, you know ancient India, um, and they would receive this method. They would practice it, and that's how they would gain realization. And that that style of practice, in which basically um, anything can be your style of practice, anything can be your practice if that's what your teacher um, you know sets sets up for you, um, is in some ways is is um, is an extremely pure form um, of understanding of um you know vajrayana uh, because you know it, it takes that same principle um and 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 you know it extends it and expands it um now in terms of the um you know the, the this style of you know this style of dress and this style of practice um this was introduced by um guru rinpoche you know in tibet in the eighth century when um he you know initiated when he basically created um, or launched um, Vajrayana practice in the Himalayas, um, you know, and and it was the, the so this this style of practice is called the Gurkha Changlo, which means um, um, you know it's long hair, white clothes, and um, this style of practice is based. Um, coming back to what you were saying, it's based on Kadag, and Kadag is um, you know primal purity. Um, and that's what the white represents, you know, primal purity. And so it's taking um, all of phenomenal of existence, you know, the, taking the view that all of phenomenal, the whole phenomenal universe and all of phenomenal existence is already pure, you know, it's pure from the beginning. And it's basically, um, you know, taking that as the base um, and as the method of working with what you what you um, experience, you know, the, the whole, you know, gamut of different methods that there are. Um, and so, and that that existed as a style of practice in parallel to to the red sangha. So this is the white sangha, you know, in parallel to the red sangha, which was the monastic sangha, um, with you know vows based in 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 sutra. And this 
this style of practice existed for um, for a long time. Um, and really, and you know, if we launch into this, this could be a, you know another three hours. But um, the reason that it's you know it's become um, you know less obvious, um, um, sometimes decried, um, and, and virtually unknown to, to vast you know swaths of you know Tibetan practitioners, um, is that basically um, you know the, the Tibetan political and religious um, power structure was built around monasticism because you know when you have a, a you know a monastery when you have hundreds of people reciting your texts etc cetera, etc cetera, it was a way of uh, both showing power it was it was a way of um you know collecting um sponsors getting donations getting money i mean at at its high point i think you had about one fifth of the um um tibetan population um that was you know practicing in a monastic setting so it, it was a it was a country where 20 percent of the population were monks so you know this was a kind of it was a massive power structure and you know an organization of society in some ways um and the gurkha changlo day so the, the wise sangha um always existed at its periphery and and it was it was always more um anarchic you know disorganized um you know it wasn't it wasn't institutional in any way um and so it was both less visible because you know when you're less in, you know institutionally you, you don't have the big buildings you, you know you're not you know giving out uniforms where everyone practice or seems to be you know looking the same and practicing the same thing um you become less visible and it was also i think um one of the things which is um fairly misunderstood um is that in in vajrayana um you know your teacher is the only teacher that counts you know and what other teachers have to say are of you know little little interest to you you know in in, in terms of you know the context of vajrayana practice that's why you know when people say you know the dalai lama is the pope of buddhism um you know he's not he's he's basically the head of one of the schools you know and he happens to be the um you know a political leader as well but he has no or little sway um you know over the other schools and if you take that and you know and this was um in the context of you know the tibetan society and the tibetan political structure um this was a problem it, it was a problem that you had a number of yogis wild yogis sometimes running around doing their own thing and not paying allegiance to you know the institutional powerheads um so there came a time and you know we won't go into this now because we don't have time but there came a time when the Gurkha Changlode was was persecuted um because they were just doing their own thing you know and um so this is one of the reasons this style of practice became less visible it didn't stop existing it just went underground more um and it also you know it it's it was um it was also you know criticized by um you know and um, you know diminished by um you know the, the whole monastic structure saying oh yeah the just village nakpas you know this became a, a derogatory term you know a nakpa village nakpa it's a guy with you know just doing kind of um shamanic practices you know in a dirty white robe you know that that's that that's the kind of um stigma that became attached to this type of practice um whereas you have you know in, in the late 20th century you had you know teachers of the Nyingma school like um Dujim Rinpoche you probably heard of Dujim Rinpoche I mean yeah. Dujim Rinpoche was 
probably the you know the you know the biggest Nyingma Lama in, in the 20th century. He's, you know, a bit like the Karmapa uh, to the Kagyus. He was this, you know, Dujum Rinpoche was that to the Nyingma. Um, and he was an Akpa. And um, you know, and many of his, you know, those great lamas were were also um Nakpa. So um basically to rein this in, um we um when Nakta Rinpoche, my teacher, um went to um went to Nepal, he studied closely with Dujram Rinpoche for some years. Um and it's the one promise that he made to Dujram Rinpoche um was to 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 develop or promote the um the Gurkha Changlo days or this Nakpa form of ordination in the West. Um Dujram always told him, you know, you need to go back to the West. Um, you'll teach one day, you'll hold a lineage. Um, and um and he said, you know, this style of practice is very um you know is extremely um adapted to the Western um lifestyle. Um, and so it was the, the main, you know, it was one of the main tasks that Naksha Rinpoche had coming back to the West was to, of course, you know, be, you know start teaching, have a Sangha, but um, really show that this style of practice was possible, um, that it was a serious style of practice and that it could be a benefit to people. Yeah, I like it. I like it. I mean, you see, in a way, it's uh, as a, a lineage, because it's got this am amorphousness and it's not, institutionalized that actually gives it a sort of evolutionary advantage in terms of surviving for a long time uh, even though it's, it's persecuted and you know but it's because institutions crumble they come and go um but if 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 what your your practice lineage is 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 like morph did you ever watch um morph that that kids program <laughs> with this as this like plastic character called morph and he could just change into any shape you know it, it's that kind of yeah yeah, yeah. you know that's that that's the, yeah know, like it's, it's, yeah it's just a sort of it's a very sane way of, of doing it um but less safe because you don't have the sort of you know big daddy um you know institution kind of kind of uh, you know got, yeah. covering your back one of the teachers that um your teacher studied with was Chime Rigzen Lama. Um I mean I pro probably my pronunciation is not so good. Your your Tibetan's very good. Um I remember going to an empowerment with him in London actually. Um he was really old at the time in a wheelchair. And uh, I mean I, I it looked like he couldn't even straighten his legs out anymore. He basically probably just was either sitting cross-legged, meditating or in a wheelchair. Um, and uh, I think I actually I remember seeing your teacher there with his wife, um, you know, with all the all the clothes on and stuff up in the front row. Um, and yeah, they sort of had, it was a, it was a, it was an empowerment ceremony. Um, and they use so this is in I don't know if you've come across this, but you know, Amrita is something that comes up in tantric initiations and empowerments. This substance and i mean there's there are people that have um suggested that it could have been a psychedelic substance i mean I, you guys you it's, it's said a few times on your website that 
drinking alcohol is okay not to excess but you know to enjoy alcohol but you don't promote the use of um of any other substances but have you ever come across that um as a, yeah as a i think um yeah one of the um I, I, I have very little to say about this, so sorry, but I'll, I'll be disappointing because it, it's it's not something we practice with. Um, uh, and yeah, I mean, anything that, that kind of affects the, the Salung system in 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 an adverse way, um, it, you know, is basically kind of um, um, not something we use in, in the Arata lineage. But um, one of the people that you'd want to ask this question to is um, Ian Baker, and you've probably come across some of his writings or his his, his, um, his teachings. He's he's a I think Tibetologist. You know, he's a he's a scholar um, and practitioner. His I think his um, his root teacher was um, Chacha Wenpuche, um, also one of the great you know Nyingma Lamas of the twentieth century. Um, and he's he's written a lot about this, and he's researched it a lot. Um, you know, he's he's written a few. He's written some articles, and it's in it's in some of the books I've read um, that, that that are from him. Um, and th that's something he's very much into. But I, I unfortunately I don't have anything useful to say about that. It's just not. It's just it's not an aspect of our practice. Yeah. No. It's more. It's more of a footnote on the conversation. You know, for, for for anyone who's interested to to kind of follow that up, but um, Ian Baker, Ian Baker, he's definitely yeah. um one of the more you know accessible and knowledgeable people um about that that subject. Yeah. Um. So I what you know. This, so my podcast is is about practice. You know, this is all about, and that's you know the I I'm I'm into practice you know, long-term practice over decades and, and all of that. And so I'm, I'm interested that, you know, you've got in your, in this Arota lineage, you do the, um, this, what you call sutra teaching, which would be more the sort of Hinayana, Mahayana sort of text. Is that right? Yeah. And then also the, the Vajrayana, which is the tantric teachings, and then also the Zogchen teachings. So that's, you know that that's you, you've got it all there the whole lot um and how so how does how does that happen do, do, do you kind of work your way through sutras and then vajrayana stuff and then zogchen or do you start with some zogchen i mean i know it's quite common with zogchen for people to basically do the introduction to the nature of mind right at the beginning and then you then you kind of practice your way through stuff so um you know how do those three types of teaching mesh uh in your lineage and and how do you teach them and what does your own what's your own personal practice look like over these 20 years you know if you kind of work through different levels and and, and all these sort of things it's a, that's a, okay, it's, a so, it's a great big question. I understand that. I know. <laughs> yeah, no, but that, that, that's 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 fine. I'll uh, I'll try to say something useful. Um, the I think the um the, the starting point is that um, the arrow term um, is a Dzogchen lineage. Now, what does that mean? Because you know, if you look at it, you think, oh, okay, so you know, it's like the highest teachings and la di da. But being a, a Dzogchen lineage basically means that. Um, the emphasis is going to be on um, Dzogchen view um, and, and Dzogchen practice. Now, 
Dzogchen practice, unless you have experience of Rikpa, you know, the realized state, um, you, you're not practicing Dzogchen. So, I mean, I think that that needs to be, um, <laughs> that needs to be pretty clear. Um, you know, basically Dzogchen is, is the practice of realization. You know, the practice of Dzogchen is essentially when you've strayed from the, the non-dual states, you apply remedies to return the, to the non-dual states. And um, that's, that's not a proposition that's going to work for, for the vast majority of people. Um, you know, very, very few of us are at the base of Dzogchen, you know, the base of Dzogchen being the enlightened state. Very, very few people um, are going to be in this situation. So there are secondary practices. In the Arata, we always consider that, you know, silent sitting, um, whatever your level of silent sitting, so whether you're striving to, to discover um, emptiness, um, you know, striving to discover the movement in the emptiness, and then, you know, striving to understand their or experience their non-duality, um, whatever your level of practice, it'll always be considered that silent sitting is the primary thing. Now, um, that probably makes sense to you in terms of you know what you've prioritized over the years, etc. But if you look at Tibetan Buddhism as a whole, um, you know the the kind of the the type of practice that that seems to be prioritized most is um, you know chanting sadhanas, you know, and, and that that's that's what you see when you go to Buddhist retreats or you know when you go to empowerments and or things, um, you know there'll be a, you know a great deal of chanting. Um, which is, you know, the, a style of practice which is more connected to, you know, Maha Yoga. So, you know, the inner tantras, but um, the, the 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 symbolic, um, you know, transformational um, aspects of of tantra. So, having said that, in a Dzogchen lineage, the um, the you know the the onus, the focus will will you know the priority of practice will always be, you know, the contemplative practices around silent sitting. Um, but it also means that because it's a lineage and because you need to be, you know, you need to be able to address the needs of people um, who aren't at the base of Dzogchen, you know, who don't have, um, you know, everyday experience of Rigpa, um, there will be teachings about Sutra, there'll be teachings on Tantra, um, but the, the specificity will, that will be that they will be taught from the perspective of Dzogchen. Um, and so for instance, do you, you mean know, very... so if i'm just for trying to make this simple for someone listening in simple terms that when you say that the perspective of zogchen is that everything is perfect already yeah that you know yeah. everything just absolutely everything the entire cosmos with a, um is perfect the the, the supreme being always um, and it's just a case of recognizing that um, as opposed to uh, a different approach, which would be gradually perfecting yourself or the world around you through gradual practice. Uh, so, you know, so it's, it's, that's, that's, so, that's, yeah. No, that's very well said. The, the exact, I mean, the perspective of Dzogchen is that, everything is already perfect and we've just lost the view we, we've just we've forgotten it it's a it's a it's a it's a cosmic mistake you know there's we there's like it's almost a joke you know it, the um 
the you know the the great the great perfection of our, of our mind and and of everything that comes into contact with our sense field um, is inherently perfect. We just lost it, um, and so it 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 starts from the top and it deconstructs. You know, so you say, okay, you've lost it. So we're trying to look, you know, where you where you got lost, and so that's where you kind of hook people into it. Um, what you're describing in terms of the gradualist approach, which is the other approach, where little by little, in some sense, you know, you're uncovering. Um, you know, you're taking away layers of confusion um, through gradual practice. Um, that would be the view of, of um, you know, sutra and tantra. So um, that that would be, you know, this this um, the the way that the the, um, the the way the teaching would be explained um, would be coming from a position where you're, you know, you you've got a fundamental problem here. You've got a fundamental problem, and these are the antidotes that you need to apply. When you're coming from the perspective of Dzogchen, the, per the perspective is, you know, there's no problem. It's all fantastic, you know? Um, and so the, the, these, these are the kind of, and really these are the, the, the two extremes of Buddhist practice, because basically um, the, this, um, it, it's really um, a, a continuous and kind of continual line that takes you from the very beginning to the to the very end. Um, what's particular about Buddhism is that um, any any um, teaching can address almost any style of confusion, but the language will be different. You know, if the, if it's a, the language sutra, you know, the, the language of sutra can talk about Dzogchen, but it'll do so in, in the language of sutra. Dzogchen can talk about sutra, but it'll talk about sutra in the language of Dzogchen. So a very basic example here, let's take the, um, um, you know, the five precepts, you know, you don't kill, you don't steal, you know, you don't lie, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. These, these five precepts. Um, if you take the, um, you know, the, the precepts of, you know, you, you're, to you know, you're to refrain from killing. Um, in, in the sutric view, so if you take that, if, you're, if that's explained in the view of sutra, well, it'll be explained because when you kill, you're, you're actually reinforcing your, your negative habits, you know, you're actually reinforcing um, um, your hate and, you know, killing is, is not a good thing, etc, 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 without getting into any moralistic things. Um, if you look at what, what, how that would be expressed from the perspective of Dzogchen, um, basically not killing, you would refrain from killing um, the, the enlightened state, which is always continually present. That's how it would be explained. Um, our, our problem is that we hide from our realized state rather than embracing it. That's, that's how it would be explained from the perspective of the, of the result of the fruit. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, but basically coming back to your question and I, I get your point of trying not to be too technical. Um, in, in, this, um, in this lineage, um, the, the main emphasis is always on, on Silent sitting. Silent sitting will always be um, the primary practice. Um, you'll have um, sutric methods, but they, you know, they won't be. Um, you know, they will be taught from this perspective of Dzogchen, but it will be sutric methods in terms of um, how do you, um, you know, rein in your neurotic speed. You know, the the, the speed of your dualistic tendencies, and basically. Um, that would relate to, um, you know, shine, the practice of silent sitting, you know, shamatha in, in Sanskrit. Um, when you practice shine, um, so when you're, you know, disengaging from the content of your mind and, and trying to find um, the empty state, that basically is the essential practice of sutra. 
So that's how sutra would be addressed um, in the perspective of the of the arota. Um, and then as you move through the different yanas, the different vehicles, you know, moving from sutra to tantra to dzogchen, um, there's a great deal of tantra um, in the um, in the arota. So transformational practices, um, you know, deity practices, you know, practices of visualization. Um, but they, they're always taught um, with a dzogchen ethos. So they'll be um, very essentialized. There, for example, there will only be um, the central deity. In many other, um, you know, Maha Yoga approaches, um, Tantra can become extremely um, detailed. You know, there'll be a central deity, there'll be deities around, you know, a great mandala, there'll be many, many implements. You know, there's, there's no end to the level of detail that you can bring into that. Um, but in, in the perspective of a, of a more Dzogchen lineage, well, the, the transformational um, aspects of deity practice will be, will be there, it will be practiced, but in a, in a way um, which doesn't take you, you know, you won't be reciting out, you know, two or three hours of text today. It'll be a very essential practice where maybe there's only one mantra, you'll self-arise, it's a practice that you can do in five minutes rather than two hours. So. That, that's that's the kind of that's the kind of um, specificity that you can have in these in these um, in these Dzogchen lineages. Tibetan Buddhism is you know can be overwhelmingly you know baroque you know in, in terms of the symbolism you know the the detail. I mean it, it can be it can it can be crazy. I mean I, I luckily I, I mean luckily I don't know if it's luckily but it's it's you know I made the, the choice of a more um, you know essentialized um, form of practice. So. That, that that was easier i i'm not saying it's better because I, I can see the advantages of you know the, the very kind of detailed and highly ritualistic um aspects of of tibetan buddhism i guess it, you know just just it's in terms of what you resonate with and what you connect with yeah. i think um you know the, the the heavily ritual um you know type is is you know difficult um you know on, on a day-to-day -day level it's not an easy thing to practice in the west basically no, well, yeah, I mean, it's all consuming, you know, from the moment you get up to the moment you go to sleep, it's just, just yeah. an endless, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah. yeah, you know, it was, it, it, it just, as you were saying earlier, it's, it's a type of practice which evolves within a monastic setting with monasteries, and basically it's, it's a feudal um, structure, which, you know, um, France and England were feudal places, uh, in you know in the the, the medieval times, but um, you know th those days are, are long gone, um, and for good reason mm. <laughs> in many senses. So, you know, um, mm. yeah. So, um, so it, it's interesting that you say that basic the, the kind of main type of practice that's done in your in your lineage is the silent sitting meditation, because you know when when you look at other schools of, of Tibetan Buddhism or, or lineages. You know they have these very very um, well. Say to be to become ordained, you you have to do a certain number of repetitions of the mantra and uh, retreats of different lengths and um, you know all sorts of different training. Um, so is that part of of your lineage at all, or or is it? It's it. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. When when you. Um... Maybe I, you know, I can talk a little bit about, you know, the, 
how your practice is structured when you become a student in this lineage. And, yeah, that's, and so, what I, that's what I'm getting um, at. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's, it's you know, essentially there'll be, um, you know, silent sitting, um, there'll be um, mantra practice, um, and there will be um, a type of physical exercise called the uh, kumye. Um, and these three really relate to, um, you know, you know, body, speech, and mind. Um, body being the kumye aspect of the practice, so it's a form of physical yoga. It doesn't look at all like yoga, but it looks like nothing at all, actually. But it's, you know, it's a form of practice um, which is contemplative in nature. So you'll do a number of repetitions of a certain exercise, and then you'll, you know, you'll sit in a, or lie down, actually, in a meditation posture um, to experience what you experience. So that, that's, you know, body. Speech um, is more connected with uh, mantra. And so, you know, you'll you'll be given, um, you know, a, a specific mantra, either Yeshit Sogyo or Padmasambhava, um, when you become a, a student. And so you need to accumulate a certain number of, um, of repetitions of that. Um, and then silent sitting, which will always be prioritized. I mean, when I say that silent, silent sitting is central, is it's, you know, in a given day, if you have time for nothing else, what you'll prioritize is silent sitting. If you have more time, you can do other things. But that's why, you know, the, the kind of foundation um, is always silent sitting. It's also silent sitting mainly because you can't really experience what there is to experience if you don't have the early fruits of silent sitting. You know, if you don't have um, experience of, um, of emptiness um, or the initial, the initial glimmer of emptiness, um, it's very difficult to, to relate to tantric practices and, you know, practices which require basically... Um, you know, emptiness as, as a basis for the rest. Um, so that that's, uh, you know, I would say that that's how, um, you know, your practice is structured as a student. Now, in terms of, um, in terms of ordination, um, there will be uh, certain requirements. So, you know, a certain number of um, weeks of um, solitary retreat, um, you know, a certain number of repetitions of mantra, um you know you need to pass examinations except you know so you need to study as well and pass examinations so it's um it, it's quite a it's it's quite a consequent um curriculum um but you know with with reason <laughs> because um you know basically when you take uh, you know tantric ordination it's um it's an ordination you take forever uh, you take it for this life and you take it for all lives um and so you know there needs to be a kind of critical mass of experience for that to be a feasible proposition, you know, for it not to be just a kind of romantic daydream. So you, you need to have put in, um, you know, the hours in terms of study, in terms of practice, in, in terms of retreat, um, so that you know that, you know, you're, you're comfortable doing this for the rest of your life. So, so say, say a bit more about your solitary retreats that you did. Um, I think my initial experiences of solitary retreat were hell on earth. Um, I think I, I, started, I, I started solitary retreats probably too early um, in terms of the, the practice experience I had. Um, and I, you know, I, I remember I started, I remember starting, um, you know, my lamas were telling me, you know, you know, start with maybe like a weekend, long weekend, you know, three, three days, maybe four days, you know, see how it goes. Um, and so, you know, your the days, the schedule is pretty rigorous in in the in the way 
it's it's built in this lineage um because um you know you have you basically get up around seven um you'll go to bed at about you know 10 or 11 at night um and your your day will be made up of a certain number of um of sessions generally between one and two hour sessions alternating um you know kumyes or physical practices silent sitting and mantra practice and you'll get a break uh you know about one hour break for breakfast one hour break for lunch one hour break for dinner so um all in all you know you're um you're on a regimen of about 12 to 13 hours of practice a day um which which is pretty you know which is pretty rough uh, you know and especially i mean i story <laughs> i did this i did this you know in a in an, in an apartment. I mean, you, you set up, you decide the boundaries of your retreat. Um, some, you know, you, you decide what the boundaries are. Um, you know, you could decide to do it in a, in a, in a, a vast house with a big garden. And during your break times, you can go for a walk in the garden. But um, I was living in cities, you know, I was the, the urban ape um, at the time. So living in apartments, um, you know, so I was basically doing this in little space. And it, it was, horribly claustrophobic i mean the um the initial uh, bouts of solitary retreat were really hardcore um and it, it took me some years before um you know i'd gotten you know far enough in practice so that you know it wasn't you know this this all-consuming claustrophobia um and as time goes by um i mean in in the um, curriculum for ordination in the arid uh, you need to do one stint of three weeks in one go so you know that's that's like the, the the big one you can you can accumulate i think it's nine weeks all in all you can accumulate the nine weeks in little bits you know three four days you know one week etc but there's you need to do one um three week stint um and i remember going into this and wondering okay um you know this is going to be hellish um we'll see how this goes um but in in actual fact there's there's quite an interesting phenomena that happens um because all all the days um you know because all the days resemble each other i mean you little you know the the, the schedule moves into um a, a, the heart of the retreat which is maybe about you know like the middle of the retreat which is the heart of the retreat where you're sleeping very little um, you're maybe getting five, six hours sleep a night, um, and you know the rest of the time is practiced. Um, and you you enter this kind of um, um, distortion of time when time starts to accelerate, um, both because you know the the days are you know all kind of organized in the same way, so that there's a kind of I wouldn't call it monotony, but there's something of that nature where you you start to lose track of what you know which day is which and you know when did I have what experience you know that something starts to happen there because um, you know you play with time um, and I also think I mean it was Naksha Rinpoche once talked about some of his um, initial experiences in 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 retreat like this and he was saying he only managed, you know, he was talking about this, the claustrophobic aspect of these retreats. And he was saying, um, the only way I was able at one point to stay in retreat was I, I was, you know, I was going to decide that I was going to die here. I was never going to leave, you know, um, metaphorically speaking, of course, but he had to accept the fact that <laughs> this was the new normal, that he would die in retreat and that, that, that was it. 
Um, and something of that nature happens um, in these longer retreats when you're struggling. Um, there comes a point where you stop struggling because there's no point anymore. And, and that's when it opens up. Um, and so the, um, these, these experiences of retreat, um, you know, really, I, I'd say, um, it's what I always tell people, really intense in both the, the good ways and the bad ways. You know, you have, um, you know, extremely claustrophobic um, moments and you have um, these extremely um, ex extraordinary moments of, you know, of openness and presence. Um, and it's, it's just um, the context of the retreat is a kind of, um, you know, you know, boiler cooker or something, you know, that, that kind of magnifies and intensifies um, everything and to a point where things start to happen. Now, um, you know, 15, or, you know, 15 years or so, you know, onwards, um, I can go into retreat now without it being this kind of hellish experience. But um, I remember the, you know, doing those nine weeks in order to, to be ordained um it was rough <laughs> it was rough um but there's there's something very interesting that happens there um because it it deconstructs your practice there's there's no room to pretend um your practice is not what it is um and i think that's that's the purpose in terms of um preparation for ordination um it puts you into this kind of pressure cooker um where the the stories you tell yourself about how you practice about what you know how to do etc there's there's such intensity and such pressure pressure in terms of um you know accumulation and you know and, and time spent um that everything kind of breaks down so you're 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 left and i you know i have you know experience of you know some of my badger brothers and sisters talking about this and saying you know my whole practice fell apart and i was left with nothing else than silent sitting and so i just sat you know and i practiced shine for a week um, and I think those are the kinds of experiences that you have, you know, it's, um, you can't kid yourself anymore in terms of what your level of practice is. And I think that's, that's really, um, that, that's, that's valuable, um, you know, as a practitioner, you know, you, you get to, you know, you're really confronted with what you are and what your practice is worth. I don't, I don't make, um, I don't make, you know, retreats sound fantastic um but but basically it isn't i think you know it's it's um it's you know especially this kind of concentrated form of retreat is um is really intense yeah i mean i did um i did one of these 10 day vipassana retreats and um just basically 10 days of physical agony you know and um <laughs> yeah and that, it's it yeah, I mean that's that's a, it's a it's a whole that's a whole a whole another whole whole another thing that um, I, I won't bring up because it's a, it's a massive um, topic. But you know, I, I feel so one of my yeah, and no, I'm not even going to go there. But I, I know what you mean. And I, my during that, you know, I kind of went in there with all these big ideas about what I was going to do, and it was very humbling. And um, yeah, 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 yeah. That's the, that's that's the, that's well yeah. put yeah um and uh i think a lot of people you know seen the end of it you know we were all talking and, and a lot of people had the same experience you know um mm. and uh it's good in those situations to not pretend 
that you've done you've done things you haven't you know um yeah so yeah, that yeah. no, no it's, it's it's very humbling it, it was it was an interesting experience because when um you know when the world went into lockdown um was it last year 2020 you know when the, the whole covid situation you know mm. started and and basically you know you know france went into lockdown for um you know initially it was to be you know three weeks and then you know in the end it was over over two months um you know i said oh, this is the perfect situation and so i you know i started a retreat um doing you know the tibetan system you do the you know that's it's four practice sessions in the day you know, so four times an hour and a half um so you know six hours um and in between that you know i was with my family doing other things etc um, but it, it kind of puts your practice, you know, you know, under a microscope. And I, you know, I, I thought I'll start, you know, with the three weeks. And in the end, I did almost three months, which is something I'd been wanting to do for, you know, forever, uh, being able to do a, you know, a long period. Um, and that was absolutely fantastic. I mean, I hadn't, I hadn't done kind of, you know, practiced intense retreat for, you know, maybe, you know, five or eight years, you know, there was the children and now there was always something to do. And, this was this was like the perfect opportunity to be stuck somewhere and to you know get on with it um and that was absolutely fantastic and i think it was fantastic probably um because i could you know it was six hours and not 13 so you know that makes a difference but also because um you know i didn't put any great pressure on myself for this thing you know there, there was no great expectation you know i just thought well you know i'll just take what i practice and i'll just do more of it um, but it, it had it has this effect and, and that's why um, you know practitioners go into regular um, retreats like this because it does um, you know you do break through barriers um, that makes it sound all grand uh, it, I think it's just that you know you you that you do go through a threshold of intensity which you know things move um, and, and so that happens I think the the real thing that people need to pay attention to is that you can't do it too soon and you know not going back to the vipassana thing but i've also heard many people um going into that kind of gung-ho and, and it's too much too soon um and i think the second thing and this is what i always tell some of my students is um you know if, if you're going to do this um you know you can um it, you know build build in some some um some emergency exits if you need them, you know, say, you know, I'm going to do 36 hours. And if it's going badly, then I'll, you know, I'll stop. If I can't do any more, I'll stop. I think one of the great dangers is going into um, solitary retreat too soon. And then basically it being so hard that you never want to do it again. Mm. Um, that's a great shame. So when you guide people through this, I think um, that those are some of the things you kind of need to be wary of, you know, this, the, the whole, you know, go through your pain barrier and, you know, push through it, um, you know, it can be a good idea for some people, but it can put some people off for life. So, yeah, that's it's, really, it's really good advice. Mm. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a sweet spot and that's where we want to, yeah, yeah. we want to work. So there, there's just two more things I wanted to explore with you. So one is I was really pleased to see on the Arrowter website you've got this whole page devoted to what they, you call the five ethical precepts to protect students. Um, I've got a conversation lined up with Mary Finnegan, who wrote a book about mm -hmm. Sogya Rinpoche called um, mm -hmm. Sex and Violence in Tibetan Buddhism, the rise and fall of Sogya Rinpoche. And um, mm -hmm. it, um, this is not a situation that's unique to Tibetan Buddhism. This is 
gurus, teachers from India, um, Japan, uh, Tibet, American, in, in, you know, European. This is this is this is one of the sort of the perils that people face when they're getting into this kind of thing is, you know, I'm not talking about nerfing up the world, you know, nerfs that kind of like foam material that makes everything safe. You put on all the coins. I'm not talking about, you know, life is not safe. And the fact that life is a, is a bit dangerous, you know, that's an enlivening thing on the spiritual path. Um, but having said that, you know, this is a bit the same as what we're talking about with retreats. There's a sweet spot. And there's, there's been really, really horrendous abuse by teachers or students, uh, you know, and they tend to cluster around this, this unholy trinity of power, sex and money. Um, and, you know, I think the, 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 a lot of gurus or big spiritual teachers can be a bit blasé about all this stuff. Um, but I think it's really important. And so I, I actually, I didn't write down what the five ethical precepts were. Um, you, do you know them off by heart? <laughs> I'm putting you on the spot here. But you, you've got, no, I... you, you've got, basically you've got this kind of, um, well, what's, what's the word? A, um, a protocol for how to be ethical teachers that are not going to take advantage of people who have you know when you're starting out on on this spiritual path you're very i mean i certainly was very very impressionable and vulnerable to exploitation um because you're you're dealing with layers of your psyche which are not rational you know you're you're going you're delving down into the imaginal realms of your psyche um and it's a very vulnerable place um so you know what could, could you just say more about the, the way your particular lineage teaching lineage and setup of teachers ensure that people are not exploited yeah um i think that, that that's you know it's it's one of those um topics where you know there is there's no um there's no clear cut solution and answer to, to i mean it, it's and it's you know i share everything that you've you know you've described and i think in part the the fact that there's that, those um you know that basic that those you know ethical um you know engagements here is that um and Pache saw i mean you know he he saw Sogel laka um you know do everything he did in the 80s and the 90s you know he was um, you know, he saw that whole scene basically. Um, you know, and and has been very wary of it since. Um, in the Arata, um, one of the um, one of the main, I mean, some of the, the the key safeguards that have been put in place um, are the fact that um, there's um, a, a very high stress on respect between the two sexes. Um, you know, as in men respecting women um you know because you know each woman is 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 the kandro um and each man is the power in you know so re respecting the the you know the feminine principle or the masculine principle in each other so there's 
tremendous emphasis on respect between the sexes, equality between the sexes, um, and you know, absolutely no tolerance whatsoever of um, of lewd behavior. Um, you know, and, and anything of that sort, um, you know, leads to, to, you know, kind of rapid, um, you know, ending termination of apprenticeship. Um, one of the things that Naksha Rinpoche and Kandra Dechen have always been really keen on is the principle of the, the, the teaching couple. Um, you know, it's, it's one of the, um, it's one of the particularities of this lineage um is that the the preferred mode of teaching and it's you know it's not true for all the teachers i mean my my wife is is not a practitioner not a teacher um but the preferred mode of teaching um is teaching couples so you know a, a married uh, married couples um who are both um ordained and teachers um and this you know this creates um a form of safeguard which is stronger than when it's you know just a male solitary male teacher um you know or a solitary female teacher um with their students so um you know th this is one of the things that has been um that's been stressed um a lot and um at the heart of the arota i'd say the, the most um fundamental teaching of the arota um is is basically um a teaching on the spiritual value of romantic relationship um i'm not going to say the tibetan but it's it's basically um seeing being in love with your partner as um a funda a fundamental way um to see your non-dual or enlightened nature reflected in your partner if you're completely open to the person you love and the person you love is completely open to you um this is um it's an extremely um easy way as a practitioner to be able to experience um the um, the enlightened state and this is very much the essential, essential teaching, one of the essential teachings of the Arota. Um, and for, for that to be possible, where uh, there's always you know, a, a great emphasis on the quality um, of your relationship, um, both with your partner, but with, you know, with people within the Sanghas as well. So um, I'd say there's, there's a, great, you know, a great degree of awareness, um, you know, which, is, which is focused on these things in terms of Interpersonal, you know, interpersonal relationships, etc. I mean, in in many um, you know Tibetan sanghas, you know, people will fight. There'll be issues. There'll be conflict, etc. And you know, the lamas will just wait for these things to you know to play themselves out, and you know, they won't intervene. Um, in in the arrow sanghas, you know, the, the the teachers will do more of that. In, you know, in, in terms of making sure that people get on and that interpersonal you know conflict is um, is solved now. Um, all, all of these things, basically, you know, what what they point at um, is the the vital importance of a healthy sangha as as a teaching um, context and as a teaching situation. If there isn't a healthy sangha, um, it's difficult for the teachings to actually happen in any meaningful way. Um, and so, you know, quite naturally, um, the the uh, you know any you know, teacher that's that has any um, you know predilection to be abusive towards um, their students. This will immediately pop out as you know com completely off um, in comparison to what the other teachers are doing in the in the lineage and what the um, the lineage holders are doing and how they teach. Um, so, 
those are the kinds of safeguards or you know the kind of emphasis that you can put on the way you teach on the way that you you know you hope that um you know students interact with each other but fundamentally there's no guarantee that you know the lama is the psychopath um and i think you know and I, I i really can connect to what you were saying with you know your as a beginner you're very vulnerable and i i, I always said you know if 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 I'd started in in my life as a practitioner with um, a psychopath, I would have I would have fallen for it um, because it's it's very easy. But Aksha Rinpoche um, and Kandrilecha and they often, you know, say one of the key questions that people need to um, ask them, themselves is, um, you know, am I am I a cult follower? You know, am I? You know, it's not. Is is this a cult leader? You know, maybe, but am I a cult follower? You know, am I willing to abandon my humanity? Am I willing to, um, you know, take any form of abuse? Um, have no self-respect whatsoever? Um, you know, am I willing to, um, you know, shun others in order to be part of a kind of inner circle, which is, um, you know, which is which is uh, where I'm getting some kind of, um, you know, some some kind of status. You know the basically the you know I mean as you know the um, people that end up in cults are basically people that have you know low psychological health um, and you know people that end up in cults and stay in cults and and actually perpetuate the cult. Um, you know basically you know, there's a lot of a lot of stigmas of those you know mental health. So I think you you need to be adult um, in the way you look at yourself, and this is not always easy. You know of course, but um. Fundamentally, the only person who can tell you if you're in a cult is you, you know, and, you know, what am I doing and how am I behaving? Um, you know, what am I getting out of this situation? Um, you know, am I feeling special about this situation? You know, and, you know, am I cutting off from relatives? You know, am I being pressured to cut off from relatives? And it's, it, the, it's you know, it's, it's a whole, um, you know, set of circumstances that you need to be aware of. And really, there's no other solution but making sure that people... And you know, in the Arata, we insist on this quite a lot. You you need to go into, um, you know, a, a teaching situation um, with your eyes open. You know, and you need to be able to ask a certain number of questions in order to know, you know, how how these things um how these things work. I mean, the work that Mary Finnegan did um, is 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 eloquent um, in terms of how many people are willing to abandon self-respect and their own humanity in order to get something out of it. It's, it's, it's insane, you know, um, the, the, the whole thing that developed around Sogya Laka. Um, and I notice you, you don't, I mean, I, mean, I, I share the sentiment, you, you don't call him Sogya Rinpoche. Um, you know, Rinpoche, for anyone who's not familiar with Tibetan Buddhism, Rinpoche is a, sort of one of the, the most respectful titles you can give a, a person. Uh, so, yeah, you're you're calling him by his family name, Makar. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I mean, but he he was. I mean, uh, I don't want to go into this in any great. No, detail, well, I mean, for I mean, anyone listening, I'm about to do a whole episode on on that. <laughs> so, yeah. but it's you know it's um. But, you know, I mean, Lakar was. I mean, Sogya Lakar was basically from a rich merchant family. They they bought the title, um, and he was set up as a lama in the West. You know, without even having studied as a lama, he he went to um, he went to Western schools in India. Um, you know, studied whatever or business, 
And he was just a fantastic con man, very charismatic, clever con man um, who managed to create an empire in the West. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary what he did, but um, he, he did it in, a, in a, an absolutely horrific and dysfunctional way. Mm. So no, I don't call him Rinpoche. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, with good reason. No, it's, um, <clears throat> you know, and to see how far people will go uh, in these circumstances, I, I recommend people watch um, Wild Wild Country on Netflix, which is about um, Osho, Rajneesh and they're sort of where they I mean they made a whole town in um in America and uh you know one one woman even um you know tried to kill somebody um you know and just totally going against everything she believed in but was just you know so it's that people will do totally crazy things and I think yeah, I think probably the way is, is to educate yourself by watching read some books like sex and violence in tibetan buddhism um, by mary finnegan and also you know watch documentaries like wild wild country yeah so and i think there's and there's there's quite good resources out there um in terms of how cult behavior looks like you know what it looks like you know what, what are the markers the kind of markers there's there's a lot of literature out there which is completely non-religious but you know looks at it at, you know from a sociological perspective and i think that it's, it's very important that people read this and are, and are conversant with these ideas before they approach, um, you know, the, these these lineages. Yeah, it's good advice. So the, the last thing, I mean, you know, and this is this is related to what we've just been talking about. But you've you've written a book um, on the student teacher relationship. Um, it's in French, um, so I haven't read it because I, uh, being a true true English person, I only speak English. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm ashamed to say. Um, it's, is there is there anything about that book which we haven't covered in this conversation? You know, that might be an interesting place to kind of wrap up. Well, I think. Um... I think the, the, the teacher-student relationship is probably one of the least understood things um, in the West vis-a-vis -vis, um, um, Tibetan Buddhism. Um, and again, this can be a, you know, a three-hour conversation. So just to keep it kind of short and sweet, um, I'd say that there's, there's, you know, there's a number of dysfunctional um, relationship modes with the teacher. And... Um, um, I, I wrote this book at the encouragement of Naksha Rinpoche and Kandradechen simply so that it could be out there in French in terms of um, it is possible to have a sane teacher-student relationship model in the West. It's not something which is reserved to um, medieval Tibet. You know, it's not a kind of outdated cultural mode um, which doesn't make sense for the free West. Um, so, you know, the, the, the objective here was to show that um, this, this mode of teaching is relevant to the West um, and that I'm, you know, I'm a, you know, a, a Westerner whose teacher is a Westerner. Um, you know, I'm not defending any Tibetan cultural mode here. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, not, this is not politics. This is just, you know, it's the defense of a, a kind of central tenet of um, Tibetan Buddhism, of Vajrayana. Now, the, um, the, the kind of, you know, misunderstandings that you have in the West about the teacher-student relationship is, um, is either it's the, um, the, you know, the, the, the daddy, savior, um, um, you know, 
therapist um, paradigm, you know, where you, you know, you, you go and you enter into relationship with a teacher thinking that this person is going to save you in, in, in ways um, for which you hardly need to be responsible. You know, you just need to have this kind of emotional devotion for this person and everything is going to be all right. That's non-functional. Um, and then you have the other side of the spectrum is, you know, the tantric lecturer um, paradigm where you think, you know, I don't need devotion. I, I can just go get information from this person and the information will be enough to change me. Um, now, the, you know, the, the, the truth of it is, um, you know, is, 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 is both much more um, self-evident, but it, it requires a degree of, you know, of maturity for it to work. Um, I think, um, I mean, Naksha Rinpoche often says that true devotion, because that's what we're talking about fundamentally in the, in the teacher-student relationship, you know, you're um, trusting this person fully 100%. Once you've, um, you know, examined that person for a number of years, and this can never be overstressed, you know, you can't go into a tantric mode of relationship with a teacher unless you've studied for them um, you know, for at least five, six, seven years. I mean, you need to know what this person is about and you need to have gone beyond the, the kind of emotional fantasy of the early stage. It, you know, it's only then that it becomes possible. Um, and so this, the, the devotion, which is, you know, one of the um, topics which is, um, you know, discussed at great lengths, um, you know, in Tibetan Buddhism, devotion is basically an energy that takes you out of yourself, you know. Um, having devotion towards something is basically recognizing the extraordinary intrinsic value that that thing has and wanting to be, um, you know, with it. And that, that's why um, Naksha Rinpoche has this really wonderful way of talking about devotion. He says um, um, devotion is actually, um, um, you know, understanding, recognition, recognition that the person that's in front of you um, actually um, has this depth of uh, knowledge and experience um, which you don't have and simply recognizing that means that you know you you're starting to have some of it because you can I mean there, there's um one of the metaphors he uses for this is um, if if you and I were to um, witness a world-class musician playing on the street um, you know we'd listen and I'm not talking about your your musical skills here I'm talking about mine, um, which are uh, none, um, I'd listen, I think, oh, that's nice. Um, if, if another world-class musician were to listen to a, a world-class musician on the street, he would hear something completely different. Um, you know, he would actually understand the genius of the person who's playing. Um, and it's the same thing with devotion and the capacity for the teacher-student relationship to evolve. The more your experience of practice develops, um, the more your devotion, your appreciation of the genius of your teacher is able to develop. Um, and that's why, you know, when you start on, on the path, when you're at a very early stage in your, in your um, relationship with a teacher, um, you, you can't really say that you have a lot of devotion. Um, saying you have a lot of devotion basically means I have a lot of realization, you know. <laughs> um, and so it's something that develops gradually. And the more you developed your capacity to discern, to understand what's being taught, the more um, you, you recognize um, the genius or, or the skill of the person that's in front of you. And, and that recognition is not something 
um, which will make you be um, in a situation, the, the situations that Mary Finnegan describes, um, realizing the genius of your teacher and being in, in awe of, of his talent will not mean that you'll be hit on the head with a back scratcher um, or being or, or, or you know doing all these demeaning things that um, happened in, in, in all these dysfunctional sanghas. Being in awe of the teacher basically means that you're simply closer to your to your realized state. Um, and there's nothing that needs to be done with that. It's it's simply um, your progression along the path. Um, and so in you know in Vajrayana, um, they say, you know, it's it's often said that the teacher is the path. You know, there is no path without a teacher. And that's really one of the central tenets of Vajrayana. Um, and I think it's it's fundamental to understand um, how that situation. Um, can be a situation which is conducive to, to realization. Um, and so that's one of the reasons I, you know, I, I was encouraged to write that book. Um, it was to, you know, to try and make that, you know, as, as kind of explicit as possible for audiences in the West um, and in France in, partic in particular, which are, you know, very conversant with the, the, um, the, the you know, the, the ethos of the teacher-student relationship. And and see it more, and you, you see this every day, you know, you, you see it as, um, you know, the, the rock star Lama comes and you go and see the Lama and you hope that you can get some blessings and that maybe something will change for the better in your life, but you know, that, that's, that's not how it works. <laughs> so yeah, that, that's, that's the story there. Yeah. I could, oh, I could go on. But yeah, no, those are wise it. words, those are wise words. And if, if someone wants to read your book, um, what's it called? You know, it's called um, yeah. Le Maître Vajra, which means the Vajra Master. That's it. Um, Le Maître Vajra, and it's um, I think it's it's published by um, Arrow Books worldwide. Um, so that's where it can be found online. And and where would people? Where would you direct people to find out more about Arrow Turf? Um, well, there's there's a there's a great number of websites um, up there, so you know it, it can be ex explored in many ways. Um, I'd I'd basically um, you know Google Arrowtear, so you know Arrowtear, um, and you know you'll you'll be you know directed you might have to, to, you, might have to spell, you might you might have to spell that for people. I will indeed. So arrow is A R O and tear is G T E R, um, which is you know tear means a term, a treasure. So you know the arrow treasure. Um, even just arrow Buddhism um, on Google, and that'll that'll you know take you to to a, a number of websites. But there's yeah there's there's a you know there's a great number of websites that you know are there both for introduction. Um, you have websites that go into greater detail about you know the non non monastic style of practice. Um, there's a great number of books out there as well. So no, there's a great a great um, constellation of um, of things to, to to study. But Google is a good place to start. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. God, that's brilliant. Well, um, it's just it, it's it's really surreal to um, reconnect with you after twenty years, and. Um, in this kind of slightly formal arrangement, you know, where you're kind of um, sort of slipping into your role as a teacher of Tibetan Buddhism, you know, and uh, it's yeah, it's been it's been amazing to see, um, and I'm so 
I'm so pleased that 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 you you've done this. And I I think you know from from what I've seen of the Arota lineage, um, you know I've been really impressed with it. And um, and I think it's great. Um, no, that's good to hear. Yeah, you're gonna have to help me with the second part of your name. So we, um, you know, I've got Jaume being the first part of, the, of your name, but I'm gonna, I'm yeah. gonna, is it is it Yeri? How do you Yerig, say? Yeah. Yerig, Yerig. Ye, it's years in Yeshe and Rig as in Rigpa, Yerig. But um, Yerig. you know, you, I, Nakpa Jalme is um is enough. You know, Nakpa is just you know the it's like the the Mister or the Misses. Um, Nakba Jalme, that's that's Nakba quite Jalme. enough, so you don't need to worry yeah. too much about it. Well, it's been an absolute <laughs> pleasure, and uh, let's keep in touch. It has indeed. I made all the music that I use in my podcasts. If you'd like to hear more of my music, please visit SoundCloud and check out my profile, Ralph Cree. <laughs>